Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives a description of the idolatry that was prevalent in his time. And at the same time, he gives basically a definition of idolatry. What is idolatry? And that's especially in the second half of the chapter. But let's read the whole chapter together. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let, or prevented, hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles." I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We read God's word that far. We consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 34. In the back of the Psalter, that's on page 20. What doth God enjoin or command in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures. And learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in him alone. With humility and patience, submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures, rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word, to contrive, that means to invent, or have any other object in which men place their trust. Everyone has a God. Who is your God? Whom do you serve from the bottom of your heart? Whom do you worship and adore above all others? Whom do you trust with your life? That's your God. Or to ask another line of questions, where do you go first when you want to celebrate a wonderful development in your life? Where do you go first when you need to express grief over a great affliction in your life? Where do you go first when you are extremely afraid of some great danger in your life? 
Where you go first is your God. Whatever that is or whoever that is, that's your God. Or to ask another question, who is first in your life? Number one, first love, top priority, that's your God. In the first commandment, Jehovah, the one true God, says to us, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. No other gods before me. No other gods in my presence. Because God is always present, always watching us, always seeing everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. And God says now, in my presence, in my watching eye, you must not have any other gods that you serve, worship, adore, and trust as your God. The first commandment is not just first in a list of ten. But the first commandment is first in priority, first in importance. It is the most basic of all the commandments of God's law because it has to do with the most important matter of our lives here on this earth, and that is the matter of our God. There could be nothing greater or more important to us in the living of our lives on earth than who is my God? Now, we who are gathered here this morning know who the one true and living God is. We know that he is the God that has manifested himself in the Bible. We know that he is the God that created the heavens and the earth. We know that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But although we know that, that does not mean that we are free to take a nap this morning during the sermon, as if this sermon then doesn't have anything to do with me, because I know who God is, and I serve that one true God. We're not free now to go to sleep because we think that this sermon must have to do with the heathen who are worshiping the wrong gods, but we are worshiping the right gods, and therefore this sermon does not apply to me. But as we will see this morning, there are countless subtle ways that we Christians also worship idols constantly, daily, almost from moment to moment, we fall into the sin of idolatry, even though we know who the one true God is. And therefore, we need to hear the preaching of the first commandment this morning so that it exposes us, it reveals to us our sins, and it leads us then into the way of repentance and fleeing from those sins and hating those sins And isn't it the case that as believers, we want to live a life of thankfulness to this one true God for all that he has done for us? Is it not true that we want to live our whole lives in gratitude to him for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? Then we long to hear the preaching of that law, hear the preaching of this commandment, the most important commandment, about the most important matter that we could possibly face in our lives, Who is my God? So that we may be guided in the Christian life, struggling, striving, endeavoring to worship the one true God with our whole heart as sincerely as we desire the salvation of our own souls. So let's consider the command against idolatry. First of all, that we are forbidden to worship the creature instead of God. Secondly, we are required to worship God alone. And thirdly, What is the reason for this command? 
The first commandment is very brief. God says to us, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is forbidding the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is the practice of inventing, imagining, forming in our minds or with our hands an object, a creature, that we consider to be a great power that we can trust to save us, to help us, to deliver us, and a great power that is able to give us happiness and joy and satisfaction, the greatest treasure, the greatest pleasure, the greatest of importance and preciousness, that is idolatry. Everyone has a God. Everyone does that. Everyone lays hold upon someone or something and says, that's the most powerful, the most precious, the most glorious, the most worthy of my affection, devotion, and trust. Now, men have been fashioning and worshiping idols since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The scriptures teach us about the Canaanites and all the other tribes that lived in the world at that time, worshiping Balaam and Ashtaroth, forming images of idols which they considered to be real living gods that could actually help them. And we read about the Israelites who lived in the land of Canaan who were constantly seduced by the Canaanites to go and worship their gods with them. To give their daughters to marry their sons and their sons to marry their daughters. Which God forbade them to do because this is what would happen. They would then begin to worship the gods of those heathen people. Gods which were no gods. Which were mere vanities. Which were emptiness. And idolatry has considered th- uh, continued throughout the ages of history into the times of the Greeks and the Romans when Paul lived. And as he wrote in the chapter that we read, beginning in verse 18, he describes the idolatry of the men and women of his time. And he begins by saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. But he goes on to describe what idol worship is when he says in verse 21, They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. They became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise, and they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image that looked like corruptible man and birds and beasts and serpents. And we are told that God gave them over to uncleanness, and that they changed the truth of God into a lie. And now notice this, verse 25. They worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's idolatry. To worship and to serve the creature more than the creator. But the original Greek doesn't just say more than, as if we are okay to worship the creature a bit and to worship God more. That's what we're supposed to do. But the idea is they worshipped and served the creature instead of the creator. They didn't worship the creator, but they worshipped the creature instead and served it. That's idolatry. 
that has continued throughout the millennia of history. So that even now in this modern and present world, it is full of idolaters. And to begin, I simply direct our attention to the whole heathen world around us. In my ministry, I've had the privilege and opportunity to travel to many different nations in the world. We traveled to Singapore and the Philippines and Malaysia. When we were in Singapore, we were brought by some Christian brothers and sisters into a Hindu temple. A magnificent, colorful temple adorned with all kinds of images, colorfully decorated images and altars, and throngs of people were meandering in and out and through the temple, bringing their offerings, bowing down to these images, praying to them, bringing their offerings to them, as if these images represented real and living gods in the heavens who were able to bless them, help them, save them. Another day we were brought to visit the Buddhist temple, also a magnificent, beautiful temple adorned with gold and colors and a huge image of Buddha in the midst of the temple. And there was a great congregation of Buddhist monks in front of that massive golden image of Buddha, bowing down, praying, chanting, seeking the guidance of Buddha in their lives. When we lived in the Philippines, we had the opportunity to visit various Roman Catholic cathedrals. And the striking thing there was that they didn't look very much different from the Buddhist and Hindu temples when you really think about it. But they were also filled with images of saints and of the Virgin Mary and God and Christ and throngs of people bringing their offerings and their incense and their prayers, kissing the feet of the image of the Virgin Mary, praying to all the saints, hoping that the saints will grant them a blessing, prosperity, renewed health and strength and all the rest. Now for us who live here in the West, we can't hardly really imagine what that is like. But what we are told constantly constantly by our society and culture and even the church world around us is that we need to be tolerant of other religions. We need to recognize that all religions are really teaching the way of truth and the way of salvation, but just in different ways. All religions are pointing us to the same God, but through different routes, and we're all going to make it to heaven eventually. And we have to be very careful that we do not adopt the thinking and the spirit of our age that teaches us to think that way. If that's the case, then we have no reason to send missionaries into the world, do we? But our Lord Jesus Christ told us to go out into all nations and to preach the gospel in the midst of the dark and heathen lands of the world to announce to them that there is only one true living God, and to call the heathen to renounce their idols, to come and to serve the living and true God alone in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And we must continue to send missionaries with that message. But we live here in the West, 
and here in Canada and the United States, more and more there are thousands and millions of people even, I would say, that claim that they have no God. They claim that they have no God in their life. They don't need God. They don't have a God. They don't serve a God because they don't believe there is any evidence that there is a God. And they only believe what they can have evidence for, what they can see with their eyes and touch with their hands and hear with their ears. But as we look at the first commandment, we can see there are really only two possibilities. When God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, there are only two possibilities, obedience or disobedience. Either we obey and we have no other gods before him, but we serve and worship Jehovah God alone, or we have another God, or we have other gods before him. But today we are being told by men that there's a third possibility, and that is to have no God. But that's not a possibility. There isn't a third possibility. To live and to die without a God. Everyone has a God. The question is not whether you have a God or not, but who is your God? That's the question. The Apostle Paul teaches us that, also in the chapter we read, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That means men who say they have no God are suppressing the truth in their hearts that they know. They know there is a God. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. God has shown himself to them. How has he done that? Verse 20, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The whole creation is one magnificent symphony to the existence and the greatness and the power and the eternity of Jehovah, the one true God. God is shouting to every man in the creation, I'm here. I'm God. I'm the creator of all these things. You can never prove that I exist, but I reveal myself to you in all of my glory and power. And every man knows that in his heart. It's impossible not to know it. But when men say there's a third possibility to have no God, they're suppressing the truth that they know. They're suppressing it. And they're going to deny that they're suppressing it. But that's what they're doing. They're pushing it down. They're denying it. They don't want to believe it. But they know it's true. Just last week, the science community of the world became very excited. Last December, we have been told in the news that the James Webb Space Telescope was launched and has traveled within 30 days last January to its orbiting location about a million miles from the Earth in an orbit around the sun the most advanced and powerful space telescope ever known to mankind. So it reached its orbit last January around the sun, and it began, they began to assemble it in outer space, and this telescope began to take pictures of deep space, 
pictures that are clearer and more amazing than the Hubble Space Telescope has ever brought. We are told that this powerful telescope is going to advance our knowledge and understanding of the universe, the origin of the universe, the history of the universe. And I looked at some of the pictures last week that just came through and were just released to the public literally this past week. The photos that are coming from that telescope of the universe around us are absolutely stunning and breathtaking. In one tiny little section of space, this telescope zoomed farther than any telescope has ever seen before, and one little tiny section has revealed millions of beautiful, brilliant stars and galaxies. Countless galaxies in one speck of space, each of which is filled with billions and billions of stars. I was deeply humbled and impressed once again, and I would say even more than I ever have been before, at how vast, magnificent, and glorious this universe is, and how great and glorious is the God who created it all. But the men who created that telescope and sent it into outer space by their ingenious brilliance, the same men who are seeing the same photos that I saw and that you might see and that other Christians might see, do not have God in any of their thoughts. They look at the very same stunning, breathtaking, beautiful pictures that reveal the vastness of this universe, and all that they see is more evidence of a big bang that supposedly created all this in about 13 billion years ago. Absolutely astounding. To look into the face of the vastness of the infinity of the universe around us and to say, this all came about by chance. The universe created itself. There is no God. Man is God. Man can solve all of man's problems. Man can discover all of the mysteries of the universe. Man is going to advance man. Man is going to save man. Why is that? The Apostle Paul is talking about that very kind of thing in this chapter. That which may be known of God is manifest in them because God has shown it unto them, because the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation so that they are without excuse. But they don't want to serve God. They don't want to submit to God. So they suppress the truth. They suppress it with everything that they have in them and deny it. God not only calls us to send out missionaries to those dark heathen lands in Asia and Africa, China and India, where they worship images of idols, but we are also to send missionaries to these lands filled with modern, scientifically sophisticated idolaters. And to call them to renounce their atheism, their deism, their pantheism, and to believe in the one true God, Jehovah, who created all these things by the word of his power in six days as the scripture teaches. 
But there is no third possibility to have no God. These men have a God. Everyone has a God. And the same objects and creatures which they serve as their God are the ones that we are also tempted to serve as our gods in our daily lives. Instead of God, they lift up the image of science, of reason, of technology, of knowledge, and they worship at the altar in the temple to those gods. Are we not also tempted to worship in that temple? Are we not also tempted to put our trust in science, technology, medical technology, doctors, nurses, hospitals, to save us, to deliver us, to give us prosperity, health, wealth, strength, and everything that we need? Instead of the one true living God, they put their trust in the money that they have in their savings account, in their bank accounts, in their investments, in their insurance policies. Are we not also tempted to put our trust in the amount of money that we have saved up, in all of our investments and insurance policies, in our properties, in our gold and silver? Instead of the one true God, they put their trust for their happiness and their daily functionality in a wide variety of foods and drinks and drugs and vitamins and supplements and minerals and diets and health plans. As if these which are able to make them happy, to give them a rush of dopamine in their brain, is going to help them cope with life, get through the day, and maintain their happiness. Do we not also put our trust in creatures like this to get ourselves through the day? Instead of God, they worship themselves. They boast. They brag. They exalt They glory in their achievements, in their accomplishments, in their powers and talents, in their beauty, in their wealth, in pride. They bow down at the altar to the idol of myself. Are we not also tempted to do that? Do we not also have pride? Do we not also boast? Do we not also glory in ourselves? Do we not also seek men to bow down to us and to praise us and to exalt us and lift us up? Idolatry means that you put something instead of God as number one in your life, as the number one focus, the number one priority, the most important, the most precious thing, the most powerful thing in your mind. Whatever that is. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's the music you love to listen to. Maybe it's your cell phone, your device, your tablet, your television, or other kinds of technology. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your possessions or your power, your control. All kinds of idols that we form and that we worship and that we serve and that we trust Now, a lot of those things are perfectly good gifts of God. There's nothing wrong with a cell phone, with a device. There's nothing wrong with money and insurance policies and and children and spouses and food and drink and legitimate medicinal drugs that we need for our health prescribed to us by our doctor. 
but it becomes an idol when we seek any of those things as our number one thing, our top desire, our number one priority, our first love, when it becomes our obsession, when it becomes the greatest desire, the consuming desire, the daily desire of our hearts instead of God. It becomes our idol when that good gift of God, which we are to enjoy in moderation, we enjoy in indulgence. We exceed the bounds of moderation, and we allow that thing to consume our lives, to reign and rule over our lives. It becomes an idol, doesn't it? When that good gift of God is the only thing we think about all day long. The only thing we look forward to, the only thing we live for then it's our God. Then we're serving an idol. Then we're worshiping the creature more than the creator. Do you have any idols? What are my idols? What are yours? Do we know what they are? Are you able to go home today? to get out a pad of paper and write down, these are my idols. These are the things that I'm serving, loving, trusting, and adoring more than God, instead of God, in my daily life. Do we then remember what the Apostle Paul says about that in this chapter, verse 32? Do we remember the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. That we are worthy of death. When we set up these idols and we worship them and adore them and serve them instead of God, day by day and hour by hour, but beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not ashamed to declare the gospel to you this morning. Just like the apostle who expresses earlier in the chapter his earnest desire to make a journey to Rome and to preach the gospel there to them as well, because he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Because in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I declare to you this morning, the gospel of Christ, that Jesus Christ never worshipped an idol. He served the Lord his God perfectly and with all his heart throughout the whole of his life. And he suffered and died on the cross shed his blood to cover all of your idolatry and mine. Do not try to work your way up to heaven by demolishing those idols and by serving God alone. You'll never make it. But look to that cross of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of the Son of God for you. and Believe in him and trust in him, and flee to him, and cling to him, and embrace him and his righteousness for the forgiveness of your sins and everlasting life. And having that blessed peace wash all over you, 
hear this command of the apostle and of your pastor. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. My dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Or as the apostle John concludes his epistle, little children, flee from idols. The positive requirement of this commandment, then, is very clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, means, God is saying to us, me, me. Have me as your God. I am your God. Have me as your God. And the Heidelberg Catechism explains it this way. Learn rightly to know me. Learn to trust in me alone, to submit to me with humility and patience, to expect all good things from me, to love, fear, and glorify me with your whole heart. That's the summary of the positive requirement of the law. Will we obey that? Will we strive to do that? Do we desire to grow in this Christian life of worshiping, serving, adoring, trusting in our God and in him alone? Number one in our life. What does that life of obedience look like? Let's look at each of those things briefly. First, the Catechism says, learn rightly to know God. Now, I want to point out, the life of obedience to the first commandment is not merely a life of outward obedience. How many people have there been throughout the history of the world who have gone to church regularly, who bow their heads during prayer, who sing those words on their lips. They check off the boxes. They bring their offerings. They do all the outward requirements. But they don't love God. They don't know God. They don't trust in God. No. Obedience to the first commandment is a life of inward obedience that manifests itself in outward obedience. For those of us who only see the outward part, We give the judgment of charity that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking with God, loving God, striving to obey him and to live the Christian life. But each of us knows our own hearts. Whether it's true, indeed, that we desire to walk in God's precepts in our heart. Do you? So the Catechism says, first of all, that we learn rightly to know him. Learn rightly to know him. Learn to know him. And you say, well, I already know him. I went to catechism. I, I went to church. I learned to the sermons. I, I read the Bible. I know him. I know that he is the only true God. I know that he created the heavens and the earth. He's a triune God and all the rest. The catechism says obedience to the first commandment means that we learn rightly to know him. Know him. Don't we tend to devote ourselves and study with passion those things which we want to learn more and more about? We're always learning. We're always gaining knowledge. All of us, whatever your calling, whatever your vocation, whatever your station of life, we are always learning and we always want to learn. But what we want to learn about is what we are most passionate about. Isn't that true? 
And if we want to learn about it because we're passionate about it, then we study it. We read up on it. We research it. We want to dig into it. We want to learn more about it. And God is saying to us in the first commandment, that's me. Know me. Study me. Get to know me. Grow in your knowledge of me. I've given you a book. I've given you this exquisite, elegant, glorious book of creation. Study my book and get to know me. I've given you also a special book. I've given you the Holy Scriptures. It's a vast book that I've revealed to my servants throughout the ages. Read that book. Study that book. Know me. Get to know me better. Know me rightly. God wants us to know him. He doesn't want us to just open that Bible and read it mindlessly and shut it again and throw it away. What does that accomplish? God wants us to open that Bible. And every time we open that Bible, it's as if a beam of glorious divine light beams out of it. And there is God. And he wants us to know him through reading it. Read it to know me. Don't read it just to know facts. Don't read it just to know information. Read it to know me. There are different ways to read the Bible, you know. Lots of people read the Bible. The first commandment is telling us to read the Bible in such a way that we are seeking to know God and to know him rightly. We want to know him rightly. If you have a person that you love, you want to know them rightly. You don't want to know lies about that person. Do you know God rightly? We all assume that we do, don't we? We all assume that we know God and we know him rightly. And all of us have ideas about God. Is it possible that some of the ideas that we have in our minds and in our hearts about God are false? And I don't just mean that our catechism teacher didn't do a good job or our minister's sermons are not perfect or something like that. None of us has perfect knowledge of God. That's true. But is it not also possible that as we were growing up as little children, we were taught certain lies about God that have become deeply embedded in our minds? For example, it's possible that we had an abusive parent, and that abusive parent taught us that God is a just and a righteous God, an angry God. And so that when we think of God, all we think of is an angry, righteous, just, horrible, fearful tyrant. And you see, there's some truth in that, isn't there? God is just. He is righteous. He is holy. But he's also merciful and gracious. Read the scriptures and you find that. He's a God of love, compassion. And then there may be others who've been taught when they were young that God is love, but in the sense of he's lovey-dovey. And God isn't a righteous God or a holy God. God is like us. He winks at sin. He tolerates sin. He won't really punish sin. And then there are lies packed into that view too. God wants us to know him rightly. That means that, yes, we come to church to hear the preaching of his word. And we also read the scriptures for ourselves to discover God there. Who is God? Do you know? Furthermore, the catechism teaches us that it means that we trust in God alone. Do you trust in God? 
Do I? Do you trust in God when you are on the mountaintops of faith and worldly prosperity? And also when you are in the valleys of doubt and adversity? Think of the beautiful psalms that God has given to us that we sing. Like Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 7. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Who is your God? Whom do you trust? The one that you trust more than anyone or anything else, that's your God. If you put your ultimate trust in your doctor, your doctor is your God. If you put your ultimate trust in the dollar, the dollar is your God. If you put your ultimate trust in a drug, that drug is your God. Whom do you trust? And the Catechism says that we submit to him with humility and patience. That means that when we have Struggles in our lives, sickness, tragedy, injury, burdens, and all kinds of struggles. We submit to those things as coming from the hand of God, and we don't rebel against him. The idol worshiper, when he is suffering in his life, he curses God. He blasphemes God. He turns in hatred against God. But that's disobedience to the first commandment. The first commandment says, submit to him with patience and humility in all of your struggles and all of your burdens, humbly and patiently receive them from the hand of God and remember that he is good all the time, just and righteous all the time. He never does anything wrong. He never does anything evil. Everything he does is perfect and right and good. And therefore, if we are his children... It must serve our good. Submit to him and believe that. That's obedience to the first commandment. And expect all good things from him only. When you think of the future, what's the first thing that comes to mind as that which is going to give you good things? What comes to mind first? That's your God. If you're fastening your mind when it comes to the future, you're fastening your mind on that thing. We say, what about the future? What about tomorrow? What about your retirement? What's the first thing you think about? Do you think, God will be with me. God will provide for me. God will supply for me. Or do you think of something else? God is the fountain of every good and perfect gift. God commands us to put our trust in him. Finally, the Catechism says to love, fear, and glorify God with our whole heart. That's the first and great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love him as your greatest love. 
Whom do you love more than anyone else? If I would have asked you that today, whom do you love more than anyone else? What would you say? Whatever your answer is, your gut answer, that's your God. Probably many of us would have to admit that if we were asked that, we would say, well, my husband or my wife or my children or my grandparents or my friend, that's the person that I love more than anyone else. And we have to realize we're idolaters. And what God commands us is to love him above all. To love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. As our greatest delight, our greatest treasure, our greatest pleasure, the one who fills our hearts with joy and peace and satisfaction, the one whom we think about. Who fills your thoughts throughout the day? Whom do you think about? Whom do you fantasize about? To use that word, not the best word to use when applied to God, but you get my idea. Who are we thinking about? Who is in our imaginations? Who is in our thoughts? God says, me, let it be me. Love me, love me, God says, with all your heart. Let me be in your conscious thoughts from day to day, not just on the Lord's day. When you get up in the morning, when you walk through the day, when you look at the brilliant glories of the stars and the galaxies above, when you see the beautiful sunset over the lake shore, when you see the birds chirping and the, the animals, the squirrels, the chipmunks, and all the little ants and creatures on the ground busily going about their, their deeds, think of me, think of me, love me, think of me. Desire to draw near to me. Desire to hold on to me, to embrace me, to have me. That's what God says in the first commandment. We human beings have this tendency to get caught up in things, don't we? We get caught up in things. All of us have a tendency to get caught up in something. That's our passion. That's our greatest hobby, our greatest treasure, our greatest joy is this, that, or the other. God says, me. That should be me. And so that's the life of Christian joy and thankfulness to God. We realize how far we fall short, don't we? But that's what brings us back to Christ and reminds us He did it all. He's my righteousness, He's my salvation, He's my forgiveness. His blood, His love, His grace. And now we are set free from having to keep this law for our righteousness. Free to keep this law in thankfulness. We don't go forward out of the house of God today feeling crushed under the burden of God's law because we don't have to keep that law to be righteous with God. God says, no, you're righteous in Jesus. Now go and grow and press forward and make me number one in your life. Trust in me. Submit to me. Love me. Serve me. Worship me. The basis of this commandment we can mention very briefly. Why? Why should we? 
Why should we devote ourselves so completely and fully and with all our heart to God? Why can't we devote ourselves to this, that? Why can't we have other priorities that are greater than God? The reason is, He is the only God. There isn't any other. All these other things that we try to serve as our gods aren't gods. That's the simple truth. Treasures, pleasures, music, joys, food and drink, you name it, those aren't gods. They can't give you what you're looking for. They can't help you. They can't save you. They can't give you joy everlasting. There's only one God. Jehovah is his name. The one true and living God. The greatest and highest good. The greatest and highest power. The creator of the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. The Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. But though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, to us there is but one God, the Father. When the heathen people of old fashioned their idols out of gold and silver, we're doing the same thing when we try to worship and serve any creature in the place of God. And those very creatures say to us, I'm not God, I'm not God, I'm not God, don't serve me. There's one God. Serve him. And the basis of this commandment is that not only that there is only one God, but that this one God commands us to serve him alone. He doesn't leave it as optional to us. We don't have a Christian liberty to decide whether or not God is first in our life. We don't have Christian liberty to decide whether we should serve God alone with all of our heart and soul. That's not Christian liberty. That's the first commandment. God commands us to glorify him and worship him above all. So all glory be to God alone, our God, our creator, and our redeemer. And may God grant unto us the grace to grow in the life of obedience to him. Amen. Our Father, we give thee thanks for thy law, that good, holy, pure law. We have seen once again the dreadful idolatry of our flesh. And we repent of it. We thank thee for thy mercy to us in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior. And we pray, Father, that thou would give us strength as we go forward today to make thee our chief delight serve thee and worship thee and love thee and trust thee with all our heart as our only God and to put away 